0: Welcome, everyone. Welcome. And uh, let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time together this evening when we can look again at your word and uh, this chapter in Corinthians. We pray you'll uh, give us understanding as we read and as we think that we might think clearly and rightly and uh, that we might be open uh, as your spirit works in our hearts to uh, applying and obeying what we read. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're looking uh, at chapter 11. <clears throat> we started that last week, which is entitled... Uh, chapter 11 <laughs> is part of us propriety in public worship. And the first section is... Um. um is a, a woman's proper head covering. I was just looking to see if this thing was right here, and I guess it's right. A uh, woman's proper head covering, eleven two 2 through 16. And we notice that Paul begins here with the statement of praise in verse 2. And then in verse 3, he sets forth the principle that guides everything he says. This principle of subordination. What we call functional subordination. So... We use those terms functional and ontologically ontological subordination, so ontological has to do with being or essence and so uh human beings uh, no human being is ontologically subordinate to another human being we all are ontologically subordinate to the god man but but <laughs> we're all none of us are ontologically uh Subordinate? Are we? We're not inferior or something to another human being, but we do have functional subordinations. That is, we 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 are commanded to uh, obey the human government. You know, we we're supposed to when the police officer, uh, you know, puts the siren on, and you're going speeding like Pastor Ken does. <laughs> You're supposed to uh, pull over, you know, because that's the you know you just can't say I don't think I will. Well, you can say that, but <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't advise it. So we do have a functional, and so in various settings we we function as subordinates to our bosses where we work and so forth, and in the home, we hope our children, you know, are subordinate to us. We try to. We try to get them to to see that and do that because it's right and so forth. <clears throat> so he says in this statement, but I want you to realize that the head of every man, and we said that word head, kephale, means authority over. Every man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man. Probably here the wife, uh, I said last time, remember the word gunay, Uh is a word that means both woman and wife. There's no separate term for woman and a term for wife. You have to just tell by context, we're talking about a wife or just a woman in general. There's no separate term. Same thing for man, uh, there's no word for husband. There is just uh, a word for man. Now there is another word for man that's used most often that means mankind, you know. Uh, so most of the time when you see like the King James, it says man. Or something. It'll, you're talking about mankind, you know, not a not a male. But this is uh, this is male, the head of every woman. Uh, the wife here is the man. Here is probably is the husband in this particular case, and the head of Christ is God. And we said there's a sense in which uh, the Son is subordinate to the Father. The father sends the son, son doesn't send the father. Um, and the head of every man is Christ, Christ is over every man and so forth. So that's the controlling principle here. And what Paul is getting at here is the fact that that in a place in Roman society, in Corinth, which was a thoroughly Roman city, um, women wore head coverings, that wives wore head coverings. This was the custom. And they wore these head coverings to show that they were in submission to their husbands. A woman who didn't do that was showing she was not in submission. Uh, I mentioned that last time. So Paul is willing to argue for a cultural symbol here uh, because uh, to throw that off in that society would mean you are You are denying uh, the role of women, functionally subordinate, a wife to her husband. So we looked at last time um, this principle of subordination, and we looked at um, um, verse 3, and now we're ready to look at page, well, whatever page it is, 11-4, chapter 11, verse 4, conclusions about head coverings based upon wives' subordination. Now he's going to draw some conclusions here. He says in verse 4 of this chapter, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. In his first conclusion, I say here, Paul begins with the men. Even though the real issue at Corinth is with the women. Paul seems to be setting up his argument with the women in 5 and 6 by Speaking of a hypothetical situation in verse 4 with men, if man were to have his head covered when praying or prophesying, he would bring shame to his head, who, according to verse 3, is Christ. This is so because a head covering was what a wife wore in Corinth. I remember I showed you some pictures last time of those head coverings. This is what a woman wore uh, in Corinth to show her submission to her husband. If a man wore a head covering, he would be shamefully depicting himself as a woman because according to custom, women wore a head covering. If a man were to wear a head covering, he would not be conforming to the role God intended for him, as a man thus would bring dishonor on him and his head, his authority, Jesus Christ. So we're talking about something in church here. We Notice these verbs, every man who prays or prophesies. Now you can pray prof- privately, but prophecy, according to chapter 14, is something you do, something that happened in church, as we'll see when we get to chapter 14. So we're talking about uh, something in the public assembly that's going on here. Uh, a man who prays or prophesies with a head cover will be dishonoring his head because that's something a woman would do. Uh, so I say here the idea of prophesying refers to the gift of prophecy, which was the giving of authoritative revelation from God. The consistent New Testament idea is that a prophecy is an actual message or oracle from God. And we'll talk more about that when we get to chapter 14. But, you know, sometimes you'll hear preachers say, I'm a prophet or that kind of stuff. No, preachers aren't prophets. Now, there is a prophetic element. You can speak of, we're speaking prophetically. I want to speak to this culture prophetically. I mean, there is that kind of metaphor like that. But, uh, you know, pastors are not prophets in this age since there's no gift of prophecy Available, so this refers to uh, the you know giving of a of, of a revelation from God, uh, inspired speech we might say. So it's not to be equated with teaching or governing activities in those sense. Um, in this case, a prophet is just kind of a a, a a mouthpiece. When a prophet spoke, they were just giving the words that God told them to give. They weren't speaking authoritatively in the sense of teaching. They weren't teachers or pastors in that sense. They're just giving uh, a a message from God. Then in verse 5, But every woman or wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. By way of contrast, Paul now addresses the wife with a sentence that's in perfect balance with verse 4. She brings shame on her head if she prays or prophesies with her head and covered, Her head refers to her, to her man, that is, her husband. This means she disgraces her husband in terms of the husband-wife relationship by showing a disregard for God's order of subordination. She does this by dressing like a man, that is, not wearing a head covering. At Corinth, if a wife failed to wear a head covering and so dressed like a man, she brought shame both on herself and on her husband. This is because her behavior would be a symbol of her rebellion against the created order, the intended relationship between husband and wife. Thus, Paul teaches that women can pray and prophesy in public, but they must do so with a demeanor and attitude that supports male headship, which in Corinth meant wearing a head covering. A head covering, at Corinth communicated a submissive demeanor and feminine adornment. Paul does not forbid women from participating in public worship, but he does insist that in their participation, they should be evidenced a demeanor that is humble and submissive to male leadership. Remember Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. So obviously these women could prophesy and they could pray in the assembly. Um, so, you know, this seems to clearly indicate they could pray and prophesy. Some see a contradiction here because in 1 Corinthians 14, 34, Paul seems to say women should keep silent in the church. So it's a little bit of a contradiction here, a seem, seemingly contradiction. When we get to fourteen thirty four, we'll say a woman should be silent in the church. And then all of a sudden he says, well, she can pray or prophesy. So it creates <clears throat> some tension here. How do we you know, handle that? Um, And people have had different solutions. Um, Some would say here, okay, well this isn't in church, because in church Paul says the woman should be silent, you know, and so 14, that's the church. So here, this is not in church, but it's hard to maintain, you know, Paul is dealing with the gathered assembly here, he's talking to them. As we've said, it seems like we're talking here about when you come together, It seems like we're talking about in church here. Uh, When we get to chapter 14, I'll explain that as most people do now, as saying that in that context, that women are not allowed to judge the prophecies that were being given. Judging the prophecies or teaching about the prophecies involves authority or teaching authority. And so that's what Paul will forbid in chapter 14 he doesn't permit women to prophesy of course no as i say nobody can prophesy today the gift is gone but does say women could pray <clears throat> so there's nothing scripturally now now some will now, you'll get get different opinions on this i would say pastor ken would say there's nothing scripturally wrong with a woman praying in church in the public assembly nothing scripturally technically wrong with that now some would say yes it is wrong because Paul says women should keep silent in the church, you know, and so they would say, no, can't do that. Why don't we have women pray publicly in our church? There's no, the one only reason we haven't done that, and this started before I got here, was Pastor Ken wanted to emphasize male leadership because there's such a failure of male leadership in the home, you know, in the church, you know, it's just, it's kind of a part of our society now, you know, kind of thing. So it's not that we could never do it. You know, we do, you know, women commonly pray in small groups when we have our small groups and stuff like that. So that's the only reason I think he, he started it when he started the church was he was just trying to get men to lead and take a leadership role and stuff like that. But there's not, you know, in my opinion, there's nothing technically wrong with having a woman pray in church. Praying is not Having authority over or teaching someone, you know, that, that's forbidden in mixed company kind of thing. But uh, that's what, that's been the policy so far as how we have tried to communicate the need for male leadership in the church and in the home, both, you know, which is sometimes lacking. <clears throat> well, then in the next 11.5b, you know, after he says, uh, every woman who prays and prophesies honors her head... It is the same as having her head shaved, to have her head uncovered with this covering. Remember we said it's a scarf that kind of goes over the head. It's not a veil or anything over the eyes. For if a woman, a wife, does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. So I said, previously, <clears throat> I said previously that the wife's shame is not wearing a head covering is due to her appearing like a man. This is confirmed by Paul's Explanation 4 in 5b6. A woman's failure to wear a head covering is analogous to her having her hair cut short or shaved. It is, as Paul says, the same as having her hair shaved. Most wives in the culture of Paul's day would have been ashamed of appearing in public with her head shaved or her hair cut short because then she would look like a man. Paul's point about a woman's head being shaved seems to be that if a woman does not cover her head, which means she is bringing shame on her head, then just let her go all the way and let her be shaved, that is having her hair like a man's. Uh, there's some evidence, some evidence that prostitutes shave their heads in Corinth and other Roman cities. There may be an allusion to that here because they were loose women who were not under the authority of a husband or anything like that. Um, There's some evidence to support that. Um, But it was a sign of shame if a woman had short hair or her head was shaved. Uh, Sometimes a husband would do that to an adulterous wife. A woman who committed adultery, the husband would would shave her head as a a sign of she's an adulteress. Well, additional reason for... Wives to wear head coverings and men to not. A man ought not to cover his head since he's the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of the man. Paul intends what follows in verses 7 through 10 to be an elaboration on verses 4 through 6, explaining why men should not, but wives should be covered covered while praying and prophesying. This elaboration seems designed to explain how the wives praying or prophesying uncovered brings shame on her head. The second part of verse 7, but the woman is the glory of the man, is elliptical. That is, something has been left out. Paul intends that the reader fill the missing words from the man's side. Now, this is really common in Greek writing where we do that. We write ellipses. Like write, we write things, elliptical sentences too, but it's very common in Greek where you have to fill something in here that from the first part of the sentence. Um So so on the one hand, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. And on the other hand, the woman ought to cover her head since she's the glory of the man. So that's the point. Man ought not to cover his head. He's the image and glory of God. Woman ought to cover her head since she's the glory of man. Now, Paul is not denying in this verse that women are also created in God's image. He doesn't say that. He says the woman is the glory of the man. But he certainly is not denying that women are created in God's image since he's referring to the Genesis account. He's obviously aware that Genesis teaches that both men and women are created in God's image. You remember Genesis 1. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. So Paul, obviously aware, is not denying that fact. In fact, Paul does not say that woman is not in the image of God Paul's emphasis is on the word "glory." Woman is the glory of man, which in this context means something like honor. So, "doxa" is a pretty broad word; means a lot of things. Remember, Pastor Ken always says, when they ask you a question and you don't know what the answer is, just say the glory of God. And you know, you, you probably, you probably, you know, if you're in a small group and they ask you a question and you don't, you've been sleeping. What's the answer? oh the glory God you know and, and, and you you'll probably be right you know no matter what what goes on yeah glory God just say that you, you're good so um, so we we're talking about the what is this word glory and it means here something like glory now this is confirmed I think we can show this by the fact that this is what glory means in verse fifteen later on notice verses fourteen and fifteen. Uh, I've got it here also. Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, see? And uh, it is clear that these two verses function as a contrast. It's glorious. It's an honor for a woman to have long hair, but dishonorable for a man. Thus, another way of translating the word glory would be the word honor. You know, it's, it's, If a woman has long hair, it's not a disgrace. It's the opposite of disgrace, it's honor. The opposite of disgrace is honor. It's her glory, it's her honor. And so that's probably what we're talking about here. A woman ought to cover her head because she is to honor the man. So back in verse seven, as I say, the image and glory of God, that is to honor and thus ought not to cover her head. But the woman is the glory of the man, that is, she's to honor the man, and she does so in Corinth by covering her head. Verse 8, for a man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. These two verses are intended to further explain the sense of verse 7c, that woman is the glory of man. In other words, verses 8 and 9 give two reasons why woman is the glory of man, why women, woman is to honor man. First, in verse 8, Paul says that woman is the glory of man because man did not come from woman, but woman from man. That is, man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. Paul is obviously thinking here of Genesis you know, 2, 21 through 23. God calls man, the man to fall asleep. He took one of man's ribs, closed up the place. The Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of man. He brought her, now she's bone of my bones, the flesh of my flesh. Um, So, um, as I say here, um, Paul's thinking of Genesis 2, 21 through 23, woman's made out of man's rib. Such an origin for woman indicates she has a different role, a different function in the created order. Since woman came from a man, she was meant to be his glory, that is, she should honor him. Paul's thought is that one should always honor and respect the source from which one came, and woman honors man by wearing a head covering at Corinth, thereby showing that the man, in fact, her husband, is the head, that is, the authority. Verse 9 explains that woman is man's glory, since man was not created because of woman, but woman because of man. Paul once again alludes to Genesis 2. Woman was created to accompany man, to be a helper. So the Lord said, it's not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper. And but Adam, you know, they brought all the animals. but Adam, But for Adam, no suitable helper was found for him. So a woman was created to accompany man. It's not good for man to be alone. He needs to have company. She's created to accompany him um, and in order to be a helper for him. So if a woman was created for man's sake, that is to help him in the task God gave him, then it follows that woman should honor a man. Verse 10, It is for this reason that a woman, that is a wife, ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Now here's a very problematic verse in the sense of difficult to understand what exactly is going on. For this reason, for this, it is for this reason that a woman, here we have in the NIV now the latest edition, they've gone back to a very literal translation here, which is right. A woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. This verse is somewhat problematic because Paul does not say what we might expect him to say. That is, in light of the previous verses where he has said that woman should honor man, we would expect verse 10 to say, it is for this reason that a, w- a wife ought to wear a head covering. That would be the conclusion we would, um, I would expect. Okay. Oh, man did not come from woman, woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Therefore, a woman uh, ought to uh, wear a head covering. A wife ought to wear a head covering to show this position. Uh, to show what we're talking about here. Uh, but instead, it says literally something like, a woman or wife ought to have authority on or over her head. On or over is the same kind of preposition in Greek. Um, which the NIV interprets to be, a woman or wife ought to have authority over her own head. The word own is not there, actually. It's just, a woman ought to have authority on or over her head. This idea, the idea given in this translation is that a wife, so I'm going to explain what the NIV is trying to say here now. I don't think this is the best way to go, but that's the way they've gone. It's a difficult verse, and here's how you would interpret that. The idea given in this translation is a wife ought to control her head so as not to expose it to indignity. She ought to control her head. She ought to control her head. Uh, you know, she shouldn't, uh, uh, she sh- and which in this case would be wearing a head covering again, but it would be control. Uh, or to control her head so as not to expose to indignity. If she covers her head, then everyone has, con- then if she uncovers her head, everyone has control over it and she loses her dignity. Instead of shaming her head, she must control it by wearing a head covering according to custom. Uh, but I think it's best, in light of the context, to understand the word authority in a, what we call a passive sense. That is, not her own authority, but a sign or symbol of authority. The, the previous uh, version of the NIV went with a woman a woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head um, or symbol, the Christian Standard Bible, ESV, New York American Standard, the symbol of somebody else's authority. In this case, meaning the man's authority over the wife. Thus, most translations read, a woman or wife ought to have a sign or a symbol of authority on her head. So if that's the correct way to translate, then the verse is an argument in favor of women wearing head coverings, which is, what, of course, what Paul is arguing throughout this. The words, for this reason, point back to verses 8 and 9, which explains why a woman should have a head covering. Thus, here in verse 10, Paul states that for the reasons of verses 8 and 9, God's order in creation, the woman ought to have a symbol or sign of authority on her head, which is an external head covering. Also in this verse, Paul gives a new reason for the wearing of head covering by the woman because of the angels. What Paul means by this is not clear. In other words, I don't know. (laughs) That's what we say when it's not clear means we just, you know, I don't know. We not, not everything in the Bible is perfectly clear, you know. We talk about the perspicuity of Scripture, the Reformers did. There's clarity. We understand, you know, the basic truths. We understand salvation and what's going to happen. We create systematic theologies, you know. We have doctrinal books and all that. But we don't necessarily understand every little statement all the time, you know. We don't, we can't. Figure it out? And this is a tough one here. Now we have some ideas. <clears throat> However, some passages speak of angels as sort of guardians of God's created order, which may be what Paul has in mind here. You know, she ought to have this sign of authority on her head because of the angels. Paul <clears throat> says in 1 Timothy five twenty one, "...I charge you in sight, of, in sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels." So Paul said, I'm charging you because God's watching, Christ is watching, and the elect angels are watching to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.12, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirits from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Angels are watching us and our conduct. Also Ephesians 6.10, his intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Those are angels. Thus Paul may mean that since angels are guardians of God's created order, they would be upset at the disorder caused by the uncovered women at Corinth. That's best, best I think. Best explanation, probably, we can come up with. Well, a caution concerning a wrong conclusion. You could get the wrong idea from what Paul has said here. You could think Paul is talking ontologically about women. No, he's talking functionally. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of the man, nor is the man independent of the woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. So in verses 3 through 10, Paul has presented his argument in favor of male headship and female submission, yet still allowing for the participation of women in worship. However, it might be possible for the conclusion, Corinthians to infer too much from his presentation, to draw a wrong conclusion. It's not Paul's intention for them to think that The woman, women are inferior to man. So Paul quickly qualifies what he's just said by saying, nevertheless, in spite of what I just said, Paul asserts that there's a partnership between the sexes, and in the Lord, neither exists without the other. Men and women are interdependent. Together, they make a unity in which each member is essential. So Paul is saying there's a profound interdependence, mutuality present in male-female relationship here and neither one can boast one over the other because the sexes are interdependent. I say Paul says states in verse 12 that women originally sprang from man since that time however man has come into existence through woman. The entire universe owes its existence to God. The man and the woman are not independent beings. Instead each finds Usefulness and importance through their relationship with God that enhances their relationship with one another. So Paul sees no contradiction between the essential equality of the sexes in essence, yet at the same time he affirms there are clear role distinctions between men and women. Let me say that again. Paul sees no contradiction between the essential equality, the ontology, the equality of the sexes in essence, Yet at the same time, he affirms there are clear role distinctions between men and women. Now, that what I just stated is something that would not be believed by most people in our society today, and even some Christians. There are some professing Christians, many professing Christians, who would say, no, no, uh, you can't have this. Functional subordination of women—any kind of, you know, subordination—functional means that you don't have equality of, of essence or persons, you know. And we know that's nonsense because we have subordination in every other realm, you know. I mean, as we just said, we have to—we we have to be—we have it all, all kinds of areas of life uh, where we have this, and we don't take it that. Um, that because I have to obey my boss that I'm inferior to that boss. You know, sometimes the boss is an idiot, a stupid idiot. Uh, if you've had some of those, maybe you know what I'm talking about. But uh, so it doesn't mean that your boss is superior to you, but he is superior in authority. He functions as a superior. But a lot of, a lot of people don't believe that. They wouldn't believe that in our society today. You know, if, if, if I, if I, Tried to teach this at University of Michigan, they would, they would have me up <laughs> on a cross somewhere, probably, you know, and uh, and there are Christians who don't believe it either. So um, what what I'm teaching here is what's a technical name called complementarianism, that men and women complement each other, we're interdependent, complement. The other view is egalitarianism that we're that men and women are Equal in every sense, women can pastor a church, preach. You know, all these things don't really matter anymore. And is that where man can be a woman and woman can be a woman? Well, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> so, uh, so this makes sense to me. It doesn't seem like a contradiction, but some wouldn't see it that way. Well, uh, and verse uh, thirteen. We see an appeal to the Corinthians' sense of propriety, verses 13 through 15. Um, With this final section, Paul now returns to the main argument of verses 4 through 9, women's head covering. But the appeal in this case is slightly different. Here Paul appeals to the Corinthians' own judgment and sense of propriety, verse 13, based on the nature of things, verses 14 and 15. Nature teaches that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him, while if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. Apparently, Paul intends his, this appeal to make two points, that nature itself has thus distinguished between the sexes, and two, that a woman's long hair should teach them propriety of being covered when they pray, verse 13. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman or wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? What does Paul mean here by the word nature? Does not the very nature of things. Paul's use of the term elsewhere and the use of the term teach suggest he's referring to the natural An instinctive sense of right and wrong that God has planted in us, especially with regard to sexuality. Nature refers to God's intention and the created order, the sense of what is wrong, right, what appropriate or fitting, that has been implanted in human beings from the creation. Remember, you know, Paul will say in Romans two that passage about that we have. in us, this sense of right and wrong we, 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 uh, that God has put into us from, from our beginning. In this sense, nature teaches us. Romans 1, 26 and 27 says that women and men involved in homosexual relationships have exchanged the natural function of sexuality for what is contrary to nature. That is, they have violated the God-given created order and natural instinct by engaging in sexual relations with others of the same sex. This phone is going to drive me crazy. Um, We can say then that nature teaches in this sense, in the sense that our natural instincts and perceptions of masculinity and femininity are manifested in a in particular cultural situations or let me say it right. say it another way nature teaches that the natural inclination of men and women is to feel shame when they abandon the culturally established symbols of masculinity or femininity now i guess you know that was true until 10 years ago, you know. <laughs> but we have people who have totally seared their conscience. They have no conscience and they just they just they just, you know, what can you say? And society seems to be going along with them. But that's what has been true for history up until modern times, I think, you know, that uh uh you feel shame when you abandon the cultural established symbols. That is when you're growing growing up, I say here, a male instinctively and naturally sinks away from doing anything that's culturally labeled as feminine. That was always the case. Boys didn't want to play with dolls, you know, and that kind of thing. They didn't want to do anything that might be called a sissy or a girl or something like that. Huh? You don't want cooties. No. <laughs> So too, females have a natural inclination to dress like women rather than men. Now, now that varies somewhat. You know, there are there are girls who are more tomboyish, you know, like that. And there are boys who have more have more of a feminine side. There, there's, there's variation on that, you know, on that scale. There's always been, there has always been that variation. But the general, it's generally true that we have this sort of natural instincts. Uh, Paul's point then is that how men and women wear their hair at Corinth is a significant indication of whether they are abiding by the created order, that is, acting like males or females. Of course, what is appropriately masculine or feminine in the hairstyle may vary, and it does vary from culture to culture. So what Paul is talking here about is... Um, As I say here in Corinth, as was common in the Greco-Roman world, men were generally identified with short hair and women with long hair. So we're talking like the head covering here, how a person wore their hair usually identified them as male or female in that culture. Now that can vary from culture to culture, as we'll see. But that if a woman has long hair, verse 15, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. For the woman, on the other hand, The opposite prevails. What is uh, dishonor for the man, long hair, is glory for the woman. Glory in this instance, as we have previously noted, since it's the opposite of honor or disgrace, in verse 14, remember, um, if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her non-disgrace, it's her honor. So what is dishonor for the man, long hair, for the, for the woman is glory, means something like, it, it's, it's honor. It must be something like distinction or honor. It's her distinction. Paul's arguing by analogy that since women have by nature been given long hair as a sort of natural covering, then, it, then in itself, that in itself points to the need to be covered when praying and prophesying. Don't get confused by Paul's argument here and think that the whole passage is about long hair as a covering. The vocabulary in verses seven through nine, the words cover and uncover used here absolutely unequivocally speak of an external covering, not the hair. Paul's only arguing by analogy here that the long hair of a woman in his day points to the need for a covering. Women should, in a sense, follow the lead of nature. Verse 16, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Paul draws his whole argument together with a final appeal to what goes on in the apostolic circle. We have no other practice, and the rest of churches, the rest of the, the rest of churches. Um, the practice of certain Corinthian women who refuse to wear a head covering is what Paul refers to when he says we have no such practice. Paul understands his instruction here as binding for all churches in the New Testament world of his day. Does this passage suggest that women should return to the wearing head coverings? No. Now, there are churches uh, that that do that. Some, very few. Uh, there's a church in, in, in Greenville, Mark Menix church, you know, where they uh, practice the wearing of head coverings. But I don't think there's any Biblical basis as, as I'll try to explain here. We must distinguish between the fundamental principle that underlines a text and the application of that principle in a specific culture. The fundamental principle in this passage is that the sexes, although equal, are also different. God has ordained that husbands have the responsibility to lead while wives have a complementary and supportive role. In the first century at Corinth, failure to wear a head covering sent a signal to the congregation that a wife was rejecting the authority of her husband's leadership. Paul was concerned about head coverings only because of the message they sent to the people in that culture. So Paul is insisting on this head covering, not because head coverings are some sort of absolute thing, but because of the message they sent in that culture. Today, except in certain religious groups, if a woman fails to wear a head covering, no one thinks she's in rebellion. Lack of a head covering generally sends no message at all in our Western culture. Nevertheless, that does not mean that this text does not apply to our culture. The principle still stands that women should conduct themselves in church and at home in a manner that makes it clear they, are, they submit to male leadership. So, you know, as best we can understand uh what paul is saying here certainly applies to the church and to our homes you know it's difficult to say that it applies outside of those realms the bible doesn't really suggest that it does we don't know that it does or anything like that it's probably been true in human history that uh it did apply you know probably throughout society and as a whole but It's not clear from Scripture that it applies, except certainly at church and churches and in our homes. Um, Also, both men and women today should dress so they do not look like the opposite sex. Confusion of the sexes is contrary to the God given sense that the sexes are distinct. For example, it would be wrong for a modern American male to wear a dress in public. Well again, I mean, that was, <laughs> that was what it's usually been. It would violate his masculinity. <laughs> Everything within a man would cry out against doing this because it violated his appropriate sense of what it means to be a man. Obviously, what is appropriate male or female dress has varied over time. It's not the same in different cultures. For example, men wear skirts in Scotland. They just don't call them skirts; they're called kilts. Kilts are not considered a female dress in Scotland. So, that, I mean, the point here is that when men wear those kilts, they're not trying to be women in Scotland. You know, that's, we're not talking about trans people. They're not trying to. When a man, when some of these men, you know, dress up like, well, they want to be women. They're trying to be women. So what's appropriate male and female dress can vary somewhat from one culture to another and from one time period another. The key is that God wants Christians to avoid any confusion of the sexes and so they should dress in a way that distinguishes them from one another in their culture. So, you know, that's, that's true for us. Uh, I see these women are wearing these male pants here tonight, you know. But there was a time, you know, when when in our culture, I don't know exactly when, but probably in 1900, if a woman walked down the street with the slacks on or something, people would really take notice of that. That was really something. Um, you know, it was, it, I, I think I can remember those old movies back in the 50s where women did that. And it was... They would make note of that in those movies and stuff. That oh, she's doing something. She's not wearing a dress or something. She's wearing slacks or something. So there was a time. So it would have been, it would have been wise for women, Christian women, in the 1950s, not to wear slacks, you know. <clears throat> and so preachers preached against it. But the problem is they didn't distinguish between the principle, and and the and the. Um, and the uh, the symbol of that principle, you know what I mean. The principle was that men should should dress and look like men, and women should dress and look like uh, uh, women. But you know, if a woman wears a shirt, they call it a blouse. It's okay, you know. But she can't, you know. So what is appropriate dress depends on the culture and the time. So um and that has varied over time that's my point. So Christians should um you know avoid being you know there's a there's a verse I can remember from British literature from Alexander Pope it says be not the first by whom the new are tried nor yet the last to lay the old aside. So Christians don't want to be on the cutting edge generally. We're trying uh not to be on the cutting edge of changes in culture and so forth uh i mean obviously some dress would just be inappropriate uh i mean the mini skirt would be uh, inappropriate for a woman no matter what kind of no matter what the culture says or something like that you know i'm just saying some things would be inappropriate morally but there's nothing morally inappropriate about you know slacks or something like that there was nothing they're actually more modest than some dresses and so forth. But you know, uh, they're. I'm. They're, you know, it depends on where you're at, what culture you're in. So, you know, missionaries usually try to observe this. If they go to a foreign country, uh, they want to dress appropriately for that culture. So they're not trying to create an offense or anything like that. So that's what we're we're trying to do. We're trying to um, maintain dress that distinguishes. And that can vary between culture as to what, you know, kind of thing. Uh, So I say here the main idea in this passage is that at least some women at Corinth, by not wearing a head covering, were sending a signal that some were not, they were not in submission to their husbands. So Paul insists they wear head coverings because of what it represents in the Corinthian culture. Women do not need to wear a head covering today because our modern American culture American culture, the failure to do so does not send a signal of rebellion against authority. No more than a woman wearing slacks sends a signal of rebellion. But I mean, many preachers got onto that, you know, and they never gave up on it, you know, uh, because they they saw women wearing that as a symbol of trying to be like a man. And uh, and they never they never saw the, the idea of separating the principle from. The custom, you know, the the cultural custom of, of dress, what they're wearing. So we can't wear a dress that's immoral or inappropriate, but uh, dress can vary from culture to culture, and so forth. So in Scotland, men can wear uh, skirts. You know, that seems to be okay. You know, uh, <laughs> not me, <laughs> not you. You don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, even the King of England wears it. And others, when they go to Scotland, they're yeah. dressed in those kilts and stuff like that. So, Yeah, but he enjoys it. <laughs> 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 some may still wonder whether wearing a head covering <clears throat> is just cultural. As I've argued, uh, and not specifically mandated today. As I said, some preach that it's still mandated today. Very few are left to do that, but there are some. We must recognize that the head covering is not the only command in the New Testament that's tied to the cultural setting of the New Testament and thus not directly applicable today. So it's not just head covering. There's others. The commands in the New Testament that are culturally relative, like head coverings, are basically physical actions that carry a symbolic meaning. Now, I'm not I'm not going to say what I'm saying here is inerrant and infallible. I just think this is right, but, you know, think about what I'm saying here. And some you will agree with, I know. So there are about six of these things in the New Testament that are culturally relevant. That is, they reply to the culture, for instance, the holy kiss in Romans 6.16 and so forth. So, um... We don't practice, you know, in some countries they do. They kiss each other on the cheek and stuff like that and so forth as a cultural thing, you know. It's not usually done in America. Foot washing. But you see some take that foot washing as something that must be done, just like wearing head coverings. They say, well, that's an absolute. It's got to be done today. Foot washing has got to be done. The Brethren Church, uh, others practice foot washing as part of communion and so forth. Uh, but I think that's in First Timothy five ten. That's just showing that you know an, a, a widow of good character would be willing to do the foot washing when coming into the home or something would 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 have would, would, be, would be willing to do that. Wouldn't be so prideful they wouldn't do it. Head coverings for women. I think short hair for men. So when Paul talks about short hair for men, that depends on the culture you're in. Uh, there have been cultures where men wore longer hair, you know, out throughout history, but you wouldn't think of, and men did it in certain times that wear longer hair, but it's the same problem, you know. I remember when I was, um, and started going to college, graduated in 1963, and so I was going to my first day of college, September of 1963. And my mother got me a ride with somebody, a guy who was in, had, she knew from Sunday school, from Southern he was in my Sunday school class. I knew the guy, same age as me. He was going to the first day, Old American University. <clears throat> We're driving over there. It's a, you know it's about a 45 minute drive, and he says, "Have you heard of the Beatles?" <laughs> you know, and I think Beatles, this music group, the Beatles, because at that time nobody had names like the Animals or they had like the Four Tops, the four, you know they had the Kingston Trio, that you know. But nobody had the Beatles, the Beatles. And he cuts the radio on there playing. That's the first time I ever heard a Beatles song. It was 1963 uh, on the radio going over there, you know, like that. Um, and, you know, they, got, they had that hair, you know. They had that long hair. And, man, I, I wasn't in church then, but I'm sure preachers really railed against that, that long hair of the Beatles and that started, you know, the long hair and so forth. And we had the whole thing about, you know, long hair on men. And so, again, at first, I think it would be wrong for Christian men. You know, you want to, don't be the first <laughs> by whom you are tried, you know. But don't be the last. So it's just saying, be, you know, try to be in the cultural center of things, as long as it's not immoral, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, short hair for men, no jewelry or braided hair for women. We could talk about that. That was really a sign of... a that's, that's another problem, but I don't think that's condemning all jewelry or anything like that. Uh, lifting up hands in prayer seems to be another one that uh, Paul is saying there uh, for men to lift up hands in prayer. I won't try to go into all of them, but I think these are the ones that are physical symbols that carry a symbolic meaning. The hands in prayer was the Old Testament lifted up hands. Men are supposed to lift up holy hands in prayer. I should say holy hands here because it's just a way of saying men should, men should pray who are holy. Men should pray in a holy fashion and so forth. There are, um, so there are, these are the ones. For example, the holy kiss was a physical expression that conveyed the idea of welcome and greeting. If one insists that the head covering is a moral absolute, one must argue for the holy kiss, I would think. One must argue for foot washing. Uh, and lifting hands in prayer as moral absolutes. The point is, we must still honor the principle behind these culturally relative commands, like the holy kiss. So, the holy kiss. The cultural principle is, is uh, what? What's the? What do you think the principle is behind the holy kiss? Friendly, accepting, and. Uh, you're you're greeting your your brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah, you're shaking hands. You're welcoming. You know, you're open to other people. You know, you're you're accepting of those kind of people. That that's probably what what Paul means there. So uh, so we have to honor the principle, like the holy kiss, though we don't carry out the physical action. So we have to carry the <clears throat> the principle of uh, head coverings. But though we don't do the physical action, uh, the short hair for men is that men don't want to dress in their, don't, don't want to have their hair in our, in their society so they look so that they're identified with women. Now that's pretty much gone in our society now. Nobody really takes longer hair on a man to be somehow effeminate, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, they, <laughs> well, you have all those superstars. I was thinking about those action heroes you see. They've all got, you know, ponytails, you know, like that, you know, long hair, you know, and they're, you know, these action heroes and stuff like that. Uh so it's not I mean a guy in my day, when I grow would have a ponytail. That would be ooh, that would be the that'd be the end of that. <laughs> <Little> hair here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah but it's not it's not thought of today. it's not seen in our culture as that. um head coverings was tied to a particular culture and time. The culture has changed, but Christian wives must still honor the principle of subordination to their husbands in whatever way is appropriate in their culture that also comports with biblical authority. So pansy, would you go get me a coke? You know there it is, right. I'm trying to make a joke. She's supposed to honor me by getting that Coke. All right. I see we're about, uh, before we, we got about a minute left. uh, So let's stop here for the night and we'll pick up here next time at the Lord's Supper. Okay. Thank you very much.